Good morning, Laura, and welcome to Next Page. Oh, good morning. How's your week been? It's been good. I've been, you know, the kids are off to school. Isabel had her first day. She said it was the best day ever. First grade, right? Yeah, first grade. Wow. It's the first of, oh my gosh. I know. It's crazy. Such a moment. And, you know, she had a bit of a rough, right when we got there, she's like, I'm so not nervous. And then we're walking up and she's like, okay, I'm a little nervous. And then we got to the front door and she started welling up a little bit. And I was just like, no, 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 This can't happen. And finally a teacher came and whisked her away and she was totally fine. And then at the end of the day, she said it was the best day that's ever happened. Oh, good. Yeah. So it surpassed her expectations. So that's exciting. And it's given me time to do a bunch of stuff around the house in case a hurricane comes directly at us because it's that time of year. And as we know, it's now they're just attacking people in every part of the world, including I mean, L.A. Here so. in California, it's hysterical. Yeah. Although, honestly, it really didn't hit L.A. I mean, a tree did go down in our backyard, but... Your own backyard? Yeah, right behind us. But honestly... It was more of a tropical storm. And I don't know. Do you remember Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada when she's like in Miami and trying to get Andy to get her a, a private jet out? Mm -hmm. And it's like a hurricane behind her. She's like, it's just drizzling. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like how I felt like oh, there's some <laughs> absurd weather problem. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> like there's some weather this, behind me. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. So we were all like, we've been through Hugo. Y'all, this is child's play. What have you been up to? I froze my gym membership. For three months because I've been gone so much. Yeah. And it unfroze and I realized it last minute. So I went to the actual gym here in LA and it's it's so bougie. It's so nice. Oh, and you saw Polly Shore because he showed me. I did. Polly Shore goes to my gym. That was a blast from the past. He goes there. You know who else goes to my gym? Oh. Fabio. No, I'm not joking. I see Fabio every day. <laughs> he has still have long hair. He still has long hair. He looks wow. literally the exact same. Like oh he, he has not changed. Maybe a little older, but he looks he looks great. He's the death becomes her potion. He did. He took the death becomes her potion. But yeah, you see celebrities all the time here. Like it becomes like, okay, well, there's yeah, Kim Kardashian. Well, you, know, you don't really see her, but <laughs> you just <laughs> you see, see her on Calabasas. Yeah. 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 But you do see, you know, normal celebrity. It's kind of cool. That's the cool part about living here. But what I'm really excited about today is our our guest. We both yeah. know our guest personally, and she's kind of making waves in the political arena, right? Yes, of course. I mean, she's part of my French, but she's a badass. I think she's yeah. definitely doing great things. And, you know, I'm just excited that we know all these important people in the government now. That <laughs> if we get any hot water, maybe she can help us out. <laughs> but with such a good talk and I think everybody, you know, kind of in the wake of any fellow South Carolinians out there or people in the South after some kind of controversial Supreme Court findings, as well as, you know, the Roe v. Wade, all of that, we really kind of dive into some important women's issues and stuff like that. So I think this was a very important conversation and not heavily focused on so much personal trauma, but the trauma that many people experience on a daily basis. So we, I think it's going to be. We talk about some very taboo topics, but we must talk about them because yes. they are traumatizing people, mm -hmm. you know? And so we have to keep fighting the good fight, like she says. And, but would you go ahead and tell our audience about our wonderful guest today? Why, of course. So 
Today, we were lucky to interview Spencer Wetmore, who represents District 115, includes our little area, corner of Charleston, James Island, Johns Island, Folly, Kiowa, and Seabrook, in South Carolina State House. She began her career in public service as a prosecutor for the Charleston County Solicitor's Office, where she represented the people of South Carolina in criminal cases. In 2014, she brought her legal background and experience in advocacy to the city of Folly Beach, where she served as city administrator until 2020. She has owned the Wetmore Law Firm since 2020 as well. She lives on Folly Beach with her husband, two wonderful daughters, and two crazy dogs. So without further ado, I give you Spencer Wetmore. Well, good morning, Spencer. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Next Page. We're so happy to have you. We're great. Well, I think Laura's great. <laughs> he speaks for me often. <laughs> I speak for her now. <laughs> You're great, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you this lovely morning? Oh my gosh. Well, yesterday was heavy, but or two days ago with everything coming out with the Supreme Court, but I am so glad to be here with y'all. Good. We're going to get all into that. So you sure are. <laughs> Yeah, this has been a moment in our history. Um, So we're going to jump right in here. For those of who might not know who you are, could you give us a little bit of background on yourself, where you're from, and what led you to initially practicing law? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Charleston, actually, with both of you. So this has been kind of a fun podcast for me to to get ready for, just because I knew it was going to be some old friends. But yeah, so unusual to have three of us who all grew up in Charleston together right here. So yeah, grew up here in Charleston, actually left for college and law school. I knew that I wanted to come back home after law school. You know, you can only, when you're a lawyer, and of course, Laura knows all this, you can only be licensed in one state, or you have to take a a bar exam for every state you're going to be licensed in. And rather than taking, you know, four different bar exams, I said, well, I know eventually I want to end up back home. So let me just move now and come back home to South Carolina. So I did that, just took the one bar exam and moved home and went straight to the solicitor's office, which is in South Carolina, what we call the prosecutor's office. And was there for about four years, I guess, before I sort of started doing a little bit more with local government and government work. Now you are have your own law firm. Exactly. A little bit of a switch up there. Yeah. So kind of, I did government service for about 12 years between local government and doing municipal law and criminal law. And so then, yeah, my husband and I actually own our law firm together. So we don't practice in the same room though. People always ask, how how can you stand that? (laughs) No, we have a wall. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, no, we don't even. So he works from home. Okay. He's not even allowed in the office. That's great. Yeah. And I'm downtown (laughs) at our office on King Street. That is awesome. (laughs) And it's Wetmore Law, right? Wetmore Law? Yeah, exactly. So Wetmore Law Firm, he does all criminal. I do almost all probate. And so we really don't, I mean, we own our firm together, but we don't really share a lot in terms of cases or office space. That's That's a good boundary. So in addition to that, you did serve as a city administrator and you have your own law firm, but you you also are currently a representative or South Carolina House representative for the 115th district. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey from practicing law to getting involved with the government and what inspired you to run for office, particularly that seat? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think when I was a criminal prosecutor at the solicitor's office, that was sort of the, you know, a lot of young lawyers do that. In fact, Laura, your brother was there. Yes, he is indeed so, there. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's back. You're right. Yeah. He came back. He had, couldn't get enough. That's sort of a common training ground to get in the courtroom, to learn the trial experience. But for me, it was definitely not somewhere I planned to be forever. It was one of those things where I really wanted to get the experience. I really wanted, you know, I probably tried, I mean, a hundred cases. You you don't do that in any other context, right? So to have that experience, but I always knew that I wanted to do government service, you know, whether it was not necessarily criminal, but more, you know, either political or working sort of in a political context. So when I first moved over to local government that was at the behest and working really closely with the mayor, again, to sort of transition into this world of, you know, government law and and public service. Did that for about seven years, loved it. You know, of course, it can be challenging. I lived in Folly and I was a city administrator out there. So there was a lot of like, you know, going to dinner and having people ask me why they didn't have speed bumps on their streets. Yeah, (laughs) we got, you know, exactly. But so it was definitely one of those things, you know, I did some really challenging stuff there. One of our big focuses was trying to, you know, handle beach renourishment and also limit development, right? So there are all these old lots on Folly where you're, it looks like you're building a house in the ocean. And so right after a renourishment, that seems like a good idea. But then after, you know, the renourishments only happen every six or seven years. And so when you get to about year four or five, all of a sudden you realize it's a terrible idea. (laughs) And so, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to work on environmental issues like that when I was at Folly. And then it got to a point where I sort of said, Hey, you know, the next place I can hopefully make a difference is on the state level. The state representative that had held my seat before me, I knew was leaving to become the U S attorney for South Carolina. His name was Peter McCoy He's a great friend of ours. You know, we're on different sides of the aisle, but hopefully I think one of the themes of what we can talk about today is that we really do work together on the issues that aren't big headline issues, right? I think people always assume that Republicans and Democrats are always at odds, but, you know, there are probably four or five headline issues like abortion where it is on party lines, but the rest of everything is is not, which is really cool. So, you know, Peter had been a really good friend of ours. He had been at the solicitor's office with my husband. They, you know, gosh. Peter was in our wedding. I mean, we're, they're just very good friends. So I wouldn't have run against him. And so when he stepped down, though, to be U.S. attorney, that meant it was an open seat with no incumbent. So I went through the gauntlet, ran, let's see, I had the primary for the special election, a runoff for the special election, the special election general, and then I had to turn around three months later and run in a regular general. So oh my goodness. it was four elections that year, but now I'm in my third term and it's just been like a regular two-year cycle, which still isn't long enough, but at least it's better than four in one year. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. 100%. 100%. Well, we're going to shift gears here a second, Spencer. So I, I remember this. I remember this very vividly, but your dad represented Shannon Faulkner in her lawsuit against the Citadel. For those out there that have no clue what we're talking about, can you please give us some background on what that was, <laughs> what that experience was like for your family and how it has impacted you as not only a person, but as a Democratic representative in South Carolina? Yeah, for sure. So I think the first thing to note is that this idea of sort of being politically involved and being more on the progressive side of things is, you know, it's, 
I've come by it honestly, right? It was it was always part of my experience. But yeah, so it was uh, so my stepdad Bob Black was local counsel for Shannon Faulkner when she sued to get into the Citadel, which up until '96 was an all-male public military college here in Charleston. And it was a big scandal. Big yeah, scandal. it was a big, big deal. And like, I get it. You know, it was like, we send our sons to the Citadel. And that's awesome, right? And I don't, you know, for me personally, it's hard to understand why anyone would. Yeah, <laughs> would want yeah that. that was definitely um, my take. <laughs> really stressful to me. But listen, the whole point and the whole thrust of the lawsuit was, you know, you are, well, we have lots of all-male single-gender schools but you can't use tax dollars to do it, right? You can't you can't use tax dollars to fund an institution that half of our population can't attend. And so the lawsuit started off, I mean, you know, think about it. Shannon became such a larger than life figure, but it started off, she was an 18-year-old kid from Powersville, South Carolina. And, you know, she applied to the Citadel just to see if, you know, just, I don't know exactly what motivated her. It certainly wouldn't have been something I would have tried as a senior in high school, but she applied and there's no form, there's no box on the form for gender. So she got accepted. And then once they figured out that she was a woman, the acceptance was revoked. And so my stepdad started the case. He was the first lawyer involved. Of course, eventually the ACLU and big firms for New York came down. But, you know, because she was 18 years old, her parents asked, they, you know, they were nervous. They said, hey, can she live with you during this? And so she lived with my family. I mean, you know, again, she, it's, we think of her as like this national figure, but she was an 18 year old kid who, you know, just graduated from high school. So yeah, my mom like made her a bedroom at our house and she wow. lived with us. I was, I think, maybe 10 or 11 at the time. I know for sure I was in middle school. I don't remember exactly how old I was. At the time, I went to a local private school and it was brutal, y'all. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where you understand the tradition. Charleston is all about tradition. And there's so, you know, there's so much good to be said for that, right? Like, you know, some of it's really beautiful and special. And to be honest, the Citadel is a really special part of that tradition too. No disrespect there. But it became sort of the cool thing to do to just absolutely harass Shannon. I mean, the bumper stickers all said, save the males, shave the whale. And like kids in high school were wearing these t-shirts. I remember that. T-shirts, yeah, the t-shirts were big. The shave the whale t-shirts. Yeah. And again, like, I mean, this is an 18-year-old kid who, yeah, like, you know, there is some physical rigor required for the Citadel, but like, you're going to call her a whale? <laughs> so yeah. It was like the thing, to, like grown women and men were doing this. And and so, you know, at one point we had the FBI stationed at our house because we'd gotten wow. so many death threats. Like it was, honestly, it was pretty intense. And like, so, you know, like one day she came to pick me up from school and like a bunch of my fifth grade classmates jumped on the hood of her car and started shouting like, shave the whale, shave the whale. Oh my God. I didn't go to this particular school anymore after that experience. Was <laughs> oh, that why you switched to Buist? <laughs> it was a big part of it. Yeah. Okay. So it was definitely formative for me. And so I don't want to listen. It's not about, I get it. People jump into trendy things all the time and we make stupid decisions about, you know, we look back on, you know, I look back on things I did when I was 19, 20 and think to myself like, man, that wasn't really the right thing to do. I got caught up in the moment. Right. So mm. I get it. It happens. But I think it's really informed my politics today, right? Like I see a lot of, you know, and listen, I'm, I'm a Democrat in South Carolina. It's not a super easy thing to do. I understand there's a lot going on. And I don't want to get too political on your show here, but 
Okay. Get you know, political, yeah, girl. You don't mind. Okay. Get political. <laughs> okay. Politics can be traumatizing, so this is very much applies. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously, it's very trendy, especially in the Republican Party right now, to discriminate or sort of dehumanize in the same way it happened in 95 with Shannon. But right now, we're seeing it, especially with transgender youth. We're seeing it with, you know, to some extent, I think still the, the broader LGBT community. And I, I know that maybe we could, you know, that's not my lived experience. So I'm sure maybe we could talk about that more. But right. I, especially transgender youth right now, we're seeing that as a huge thing. You know, we see it with immigrants. We see it like it's just this dehumanization thing where, you know, it started off, I think, well, I mean, it's it's long been a thread, but right, the most recent strain of it you know, the, the Mexicans are coming and, you know, and then the, the, and stop the drag Queens. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> like, like as if that's not, I mean, y'all, I gotta tell you. All right. So small detour here. There's a restaurant on Folly that has like a drag brunch once mm-hmm. a quarter or something. And like upstate colleagues of mine were calling me like, Hey, we heard that just a heads up. Like we heard there was a drag brunch on Folly. And I'm like, yeah, I was there. It was lovely. Like, let's let those parents worry about their kids and let me worry about mine. <laughs> like, right? Oh, my gosh. Like, it is and, crazy. and Laura, I think you used to host a drag brunch oh, at the yeah, Beer Garden. Yeah, we've had, yeah. It, we've had it quite a few times. And honestly, it's, it's, it's really goes very well. The only thing yeah. is sometimes the families that walk in with like, you know, that we're expecting to have a nice mm-hmm. Sunday right. after right. like a church thing or kind of like, yeah. oh, this is not what we were expecting. But yeah. Overall, you know, the response is not that, you know, it's it's usually very positive, but you would think from the kind of whispers and discussion outside of that, it's like, you know, for the most part, most of those people aren't going out to Folly for brunch anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's not like my 16 year old doesn't know that that is a thing. So if if she wants to enjoy brunch with us and laugh at, you know, it's, I mean, it's pageantry, it's theater. I mean, you know, it's just guys, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so all that to say that, you know, I walked into politics, A, very cynical, right? I get it. I know what can happen. I know what the sort of, I don't want to say good old boy network, but I'm going to say it, right? Yeah. I, I know the world that I'm, I'm in. I also know that it can be more effective to work from within. That's always been my strategy, right? That's always been sort of how I feel like I can do change and, you know, some folks within my own party get frustrated with me because they're like, you're not doing enough. You're not loud enough. You're not vocal enough. And I'm like, well, that's just not my style that like had the opportunity to do a fellowship with Stacey Abrams for fair fight. And one of the most important lessons I took out of that is like, you've got to own your own style, right? Like I'm a pragmatist. I'm a peacemaker and a pragmatist. And that's just going to be my style. I'm not a fighter. And there are other people in my caucus who are. And so the the whole thing is to to meet up with those people, right? So like one of my best friends up at the state house, Jermaine Johnson, he is a fighter and we have to work together, right? Because I can achieve things as a pragmatist and he can achieve things as a fighter. I think the whole experience with Shannon really helped me to really open my eyes to sort of what can happen and and what, you know, we sort of have to you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just deeply cynical, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> you were thrust into the ugliest side of politics. So it was probably very formative. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, all that to say, when the save women's sports people tried to reference the Citadel as like a victory for women, I almost died. Like it took all my restraint not to stand up on the house floor and be like, I guarantee you how to save the males, shave the whale shirt. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, 
I like, can see don't, you. I remember don't you. Don't tell me you're like a women's rights activist. <laughs> Maybe they've evolved. Sure. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, sure. so I mean, listen, I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad now they're on the right. Whatever. But this whole idea of save women's sports for you mean from the transgender women? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yes. So whatever. It, it is what it is. But. Well, you said you, you're not really a fighter, but I would kind of beg to differ a little bit. Maybe it's a, you pick your battles, which is wise, right. you know, like because. No, I think when they come for her, yeah. when they come for her, yeah. <laughs> she has a very, very strong backbone. She's not going to outwardly go after you, but don't come for Spencer Wetmore. Okay. Facts. Yeah, exactly. Facts. <laughs> so, you know, when we say come for you, you are very passionate about women's issues as a whole, which is commend you on that obviously as a woman myself, but I think everybody should probably be interested in that. And this passion has kind of come out and gone viral several times <laughs> on TikTok and yeah. other other videos speaking about women's reproductive rights and, and ultimately abortion laws, which we'll get more specific about a little bit later. But why do you think that these videos have garnered so much attention online and nationally? Well, obviously, this is a big issue nationally. I think if you live in New York or California or Connecticut, like honestly, listening to some of my colleagues defend this, I think the videos that have gone the most viral are the ones where we were debating a no week bill. So in other words, a zero week complete total ban. I think like, unfortunately, listening to my colleagues defend that bill is like the exact stereotype of like what oh, they yeah. assume a Southern legislator sounds like. And so then to have a woman come back at him, you know, and honestly, I, I think the one that went the most viral, it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm sitting in this committee hearing. I'm so sick of talking about abortion, y'all. I'm so sick of it. This is insane. I don't want to talk about it. Y'all keep bringing it, not you guys, but like, I just mean like, I'm so sick of having like, you know, I do all this homework, right? So I'm like, I know all the statistics. I know all the facts. I've talked to all the doctors. I've done all the research, you know, and it's crazy because you get up there. I had one, one of my colleagues say, well, you know, you talk about women's autonomy, like shouldn't they have exercised that autonomy at conception? And I'm like, are you asking me if women should have kept their legs closed? Like, what are we doing? Like, And it's blame shifting to the female. Yeah. Like it's your responsibility if you get pregnant. It's like, it takes two, sir. If men had to carry a baby, we would be in such a different world right now. Yeah. Oh, I've always said that, you know, or if men had a period, you know, they'd be using old socks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They would. That or there would be just, I don't know. It would would... just be awful. You got a tampon in your truck? Like it would be bad. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It'd It'd be raining from the sky. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, I think the one that went the most viral is this intersection between what everybody's stereotype of like Southern legislator pushing an extreme abortion ban. And then this woman who's just like, man, I've been pregnant. Like you don't have to mansling pregnancy to me. (laughs) You know, like, yes, I am very aware of the stages of development. Yeah. So we actually were going to do this maybe a little later in the show, but I think right now is a great segue. We have, I'm going to play, I'm going to play the audio from that and I'm going to get your, your reaction now being, I think a year later. And this is with Senator McCravey. Have you looked at a photograph of a baby at 24 weeks? Well, 
I would certainly stop you there because a baby is a is a human outside of the womb, and and that's why viability was selected as this uh, well, marker. Well, we'll call it an unborn child then. Have you uh, looked at a photograph of an unborn child at 24 weeks? Mr. McCravey, I've never, I've never stood up here. I've never, I've never come to you and said, rah, rah, yay, abortion. I have always described it as a very difficult choice that a woman makes on a very difficult day. Well, I realize you don't want to answer my question, but I have looked at it and it's, it's frankly fully developed. Uh, did you, did, are you aware that at 24 weeks, the fetal brain stem is entirely developed? Are you aware that at six weeks there is no heart? Are you? Well, I'm trying to ask you questions, and, and I, I see that you don't want to answer them. Are you aware that the baby reacts to sound noises at 24 weeks? I am. Are you aware that the limb movements of the, of the unborn child are coordinated, that it can touch its ears and its umbilical cord, that its lungs are fully developed? Mr. McCravey, may, 24 I, weeks. may I remind you that I have been pregnant, and yes, I have personally, I am very aware of all of this. And are you aware that it can survive outside the womb at 23 weeks with care? Well, I think that's how the definition of viability matters as to whether or not medical intervention. So after 23 weeks, but before 24 weeks, what does your amendment say if the child is born alive? Are you just going to kill the child or let it die right there on the table? Mr. McCravey, I think suggesting that I would introduce an amendment that promotes infanticide is certainly irresponsible. Your reaction, please, Spencer, <laughs> to, that, to that exchange. Like, we have so many, so we need It's yours. so much. I mean, what is a sound noise? Like, reacts to sound noises? What are you yeah. talking about? You're not a doctor, sir. My reaction is, okay, my favorite comment on TikTok, and y'all, I really pride myself on being respectful to my colleagues, but this is well-deserved in this moment. So my favorite comment on TikTok, which which just the comment got 13,000 likes, it's spelled out in a way with like, it's like written like with H's and stuff to indicate that it's said in a Southern accent. And it's like, have you never seen a baby wearing a little hat at 24 weeks? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, the, the That's accent. how I feel about that clip. And like, listen, let's talk facts for just a second here, because it's really important that we not let the abortion pro-life advocates define the terms of this conversation, right? The reality is 99% of abortions happen in the first trimester. So prior to 13 weeks, 99%. In South Carolina, there were 400 abortions over a period of years, five years total. There were 400 after 13 weeks, okay? So this is not common. And when it happens, almost always, not I'm not gonna say always, but almost always, it is a very sad like a fa like the saddest cases, right? Like a family who has prayed for a child who finally got pregnant and then got devastating news at their 20 week, you know, anomaly scan, excuse me, their 20 week scan yeah. out of fetal anatomy. Yes. So the anomaly is when it's discovered in the anatomy scan. Sorry about that. I'm also not a doctor. I shouldn't be making these decisions <laughs> either. But yeah, so like, this is not like some situation where we've got this rash of late term abortions. You know, I, I listened to the Republican primary debate the other night and, and they're saying that like, you know, Democrats want abortions up until a moment of birth. Like, that's ridiculous. I don't. I'm just saying I'm not a doctor. I'm not qualified to make this decision. Right. Like no one would advocate for that. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like what I'm saying is that 
This is a, a decision that like families and doctors are perfectly capable of making without my involvement. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah. like no one's advocating for an abortion at 24 weeks or at 34 weeks or, you know, any of that. So I think that's the most important thing to frame this discussion. Right. And, and that's what's so frustrating to me about listening to that video is like, you know, of course, I'm a perfectionist. I should have said all that then. Right. But I was so annoyed and I was like, just. Ugh. Well, he would have probably had the same response of like, well, you clearly don't want to answer my questions. I mean, it was just like, no matter what, he's like, I have a list right here. Yeah, I'm going to ask him. But also the lungs are fully developed. I looked it up. The lungs are fully developed at 37 weeks, not 24. The man, he had a moment there, didn't he? And it was a lot of, to me, that's what I wanted to ask you, Spencer. I'm even going a little off script here. You have a lot of men, cis straight Mm -hmm. men telling Mm -hmm. you about what women should do with their bodies and what, how they should make decisions about Mm -hmm. that affect them and their family and their lives and their health, frankly. Mm -hmm. So how does that, when you're doing that, Mm -hmm. because we talk a lot about, you know, trauma on the show and but for specifically for this how do you deal with that crap there's no other way to put it there's it's just like sir you do not have a uterus last time i checked could you please stop telling me what to do about my body thank you so much yeah exactly i mean y'all this is why i think starting off the show asking me about shannon faulkner matters right because this is the crap i've been dealing with this is the deal like i knew this would be the deal when i got into politics right i mean it's annoying it's so annoying but it's just one of those things where like, I get like, he is caught up in some movement where he be- like that particular legislator, y'all, he's like a true believer. He really believes that like, this is a bait. I mean, it's almost hard to argue with that. It's almost more frustrating when people don't really believe it, but do it for politics, right? That particular legislator really believes, at least I think he does, like really believes that this is like a baby from God. And I don't, that my faith has not led me in that direction. That is not my position, obviously. But, you know, I mean, how do I argue with somebody sincerely held belief like that, right? Yeah, yeah. To answer your question, like, this is exactly what I expected. I had no, this is exactly the same kind of bullshit that, you know, Shannon encountered, right? As a bunch of men telling her that she wasn't fit to handle the Citadel, that she wasn't fit to make these decisions for herself, that she needed to be controlled, frankly. And abortion is the same thing, right? It's about control. It's about autonomy. And, you know, I mean, it's just more of the same, in my opinion. To me, it's like, it's just you're watching gaslighting happen on the floor because he's like literally telling you, he's like, you don't want to answer my questions when you just answered his freaking question. It's like, yeah, or, I mean, yeah. I think what's most important is like, you know, he's, it's so patronizing, like that he's just right. like, oh. have you seen a photo of a baby? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I have been pregnant. I, yeah. yes. Do you realize that? <laughs> Sir, have you been pregnant? Have you gone yeah. to the doctor? They give you photos. They give you more than yeah. you want. I mean, it's right. like, I've, yes, I've right. seen my children inside my own womb. Yeah. And so yeah. that is, I think, really infuriating to assume that you wouldn't know any of that, first of Maybe all. Maybe I'm just misinformed, like woefully misinformed. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. He was needed at that moment to educate you on how this all works. Like, that's the and most then, frustrating yeah. And then insinuating that you want to kill children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's where it ultimately always goes to, you know, that yeah. that's like, well, it's murder. And it's like, are you just going to let it die on the table? Sir, stop. Just, yeah. just that, stop. Like, you know that that's not a thing. Like, stop. Yeah. And so that's their whole playbook, right? Is to sort of paint me as like super extreme when the reality, and again, Laura, I want to go back to something you said earlier about sort of being a fighter versus a pragmatist. 
this is the issue to fight on, right? Like this. And I also, I was the only Democrat on the subcommittee that handled like the Save Women Sports Bill and a few other transgender issues. And though, you know, prohibiting education of transgender materials and, and just a few things like that. And those are, in my mind, anything that involves sort of equality or human rights, those are the things to fight for, right? Those are the things to be really loud about. And so it was that guy, that guy, it was Representative McCravey was my subcommittee chair. And, you know, we had all these advocates testifying and he would refuse, like he would intentionally misgender them, right? And so that's another moment where you have to speak up and say like, no, Mr. McCravey, this is, you know, Ms. Tisdale or whatever. Yeah, I'm making that name up. But like, you know, this is ridiculous is what this is. And so there are some moments where you do have to fight. But I think on the whole, you know, like I said at the beginning, most issues for me are ones where I really do try to work together. You know, I'm thankfully now been moved to the criminal law subcommittee. So I really do get to work with my colleagues on, you know, the bond bill and the fentanyl trafficking bill and, you know, things that Listen, we didn't agree on every piece of it, but I was able to compromise, right? So the bond bill, there was a piece of it that required a defendant to post a 100% bond if he'd been out on bond before and was arrested for a, another violent crime, right? I don't think a 100% bond makes sense. I think it creates a bond just for the wealthy, but like just because I didn't agree on that, we made it as good as we could and then we passed the bill, right? So that's the kind of thing where I'm a pragmatist, right? I, I'm not going to compromise and Growing up and governing is what we all need to do. But there are some issues like abortion where, yeah, you just have to fight and you have to, you got to do it. Well, and I think that very much leads to the next point that I think is really important right now, especially here, is that very recently, literally days ago, a six-week abortion ban was upheld in South Carolina by a newly male-packed Supreme Court, despite it being struck down as essentially a somewhat different bill, which I would love to kind of get your perspective on, on your thoughts on that. But, you know, it was essentially the same bill but was struck down in January when we had a female on the Supreme Court. She basically aged out. Now it's all males. And Justice John Kittredge, in his majority opinion, you know, upholding this, he actually acknowledged a woman's right of privacy and bodily autonomy, but said the state legislature reasonably determined this time around that those interests don't outweigh the interest of the unborn child to live. Kind of what were your immediate thoughts in the wake of, <laughs> of this decision and kind of what can we expect? So, you know, I mean, listen, that's kind of it. Sadly to say, it's kind of the end of the road on this issue, but for electing other legislators, right? So, so the legislators elected judges, which... I'm not going to criticize that system, right? It's easy with all this to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't have that. But like a public election of judges, I think is actually worse, right? So I'm not here to criticize the system. You know, you see in other states where they publicly elect judges, they're electing like just people who really are not qualified to be on the bench. At least the system we have, there may be some politics to it, but like I would say on the whole, the South Carolina judiciary is made up of very smart lawyers who are very capable of doing a very good job, right? So while this decision was incredibly frustrating, I don't think the reaction should be to say, well, we need to change how we appoint the judges. That was the first reaction for a lot of people. And unfortunately, the alternative is just worse, right? Like, <laughs> unfortunately, the alternative is how we get private prisons. And, you know, because anytime the judges have to fundraise, right? Fundraising is the worst part of politics. I hate it the most. But like, 
anytime you introduce fundraising, you're introducing some interests, right? So fortunately for me, I've been able to fundraise with lawyers and women and like people that I agreed with already. But if you have judges accepting money like that, that's how we got private prisons because private prisons were the main ones funding these judicial campaigns, right? So that's worse in my mind, right? So I'm not saying that our system is perfect, but, and obviously reading that decision, it's inescapable that there was some politics involved, right? I mean, it's just inescapable. And I hate to interrupt you, but I guess it's one of my main things reading the majority opinion is that in what way did the legislature reasonably Mm -hmm. determine this time around that those interests don't outweigh it? Like what was proven between then and now? Nothing, but they put that statement in the preamble, right? So like they wrote another whereas clause in the preamble of this bill that basically just says a statement of fact. And so then by voting on that bill with that statement in there, now the court is saying, oh, it's proven. Yeah. So obviously that's political. Obviously it's almost too much to read the opinion because the mental gymnastics it took to get there is almost overwhelming for me as like a lawyer and a mm-hmm. just a person who like a literate person, right? Like yeah. I'm not saying you have to be a lawyer. Like I'm just saying like anyone who can read, it's a lot of mental gymnastics. And so listen, what's that saying? Like you know that someone whenever they're working too hard, you know that like you know what's yeah. underneath that, right? Like whenever yeah. they're using like huge words and like really complicated legal series, like Obviously, if you believed in what you were saying, you would just say it as plainly as possible. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, right. You know, I mean, listen, it's frustrating to read. Unfortunately, it's kind of the end of the road. You know, I mean, the Planned Parenthood has already filed a petition for rehearing, but we don't expect that to go differently. And so short of changing the makeup, you know, electing different legislators and supporting the ones who, if it's something that you're passionate about, that have been on the right side of the issue, you know, that's... This is where we are now. And so is there a way to talk to them like on the sidelines and be like, look, can we just have a conversation, like an actual conversation to maybe change their who? viewpoint at all that the people passing the all this crap or the, yeah. oh, the legislators legislators? So, yeah. I mean, man, y'all, this is so like there are so many things that are messed up about politics everywhere, not just South Carolina. But unfortunately, we have gerrymandered our races. We have gerrymandered our districts so that. In South Carolina, we have 124 House reps. I would say fewer than 10 of those seats are competitive in a general election. The other 114 are basically only running in primaries, right? So the Democrats, like some of that is a very great byproduct of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? We needed to create majority minority districts where we could have African-American representatives representing these Black communities, right? Because at the end of the day, Laura, you said it so well, don't come at, or maybe Todd, you said, don't come at me, right? Like I'm naturally going to be the most passionate about women's issues because I'm a woman, because I've experienced this. It's the same thing. Like a black community is just, you know, it's important to have black representatives there, right? As much as I want to be in my mind, I'm like aware of issues and equality and, you know, racial issues and bias and all these things. It's just never going to be the same as having that lived experience, right? So Some of that is a good thing, right? So in Democratic primaries, those are often majority minority districts, and that is a good thing. That's as it should be, right? But on the other side of the table, what that creates are, you know, six lily white districts around it when you draw a district like that, right? And so regardless of what a reasonable representative thinks, 
they believe they have to vote in a way to get through primaries. And so the only rep- Republican that ever went the other way was William Cogswell when he was up there. He would vote against these bills. But, you know, man, and I get it, right? Like some of the most reasonable Republicans I know had some of the toughest primaries this year. You know, Micah Cassie is a great friend of mine, and I think he won his primary by like five or six votes. So I, I get it, right? I get it. So they're feeling like, well, this is a tenant of my party. Like when I signed up to run as a Republican, this is in the platform. And, you know, regardless of their personal feelings, I think they feel a lot of pressure to represent what they believe to be the wishes of their constituents. So it's frustrating, man. Is that a fear that they won't get reelected in two years? Or is that just that they feel like they're letting their constituents down? Because it just seems to me like, you know, if we really wanted to come up with some kind of strategy, it would just be like, let's just have people go through and say, yeah, I totally agree with you. And then get in there and be like, just kidding. Listen, there's not enough people to really make that happen. So the closest we came to fundraising in and of itself. Right, right. So we do have a lot of great groups that are starting to understand the importance of participating in Republican primaries in terms of expenditures and things like that. And so, yes, we've got to support moderate Republicans in primaries. But, you know, we did see probably 12 Republicans, enough to kill the bill, enough to join with the Democrats and kill the bill. For the very first time, it came to a vote. It had no exceptions for rape or incest in there. And it died because there were enough Republicans that were willing to say, no, we're not going to support that. And they joined with the Democrats and we killed it by like three votes or something. So it's both, you know, their whole thing is like, until Roe v. Wade went away, it was all an intellectual exercise. They could support it, rah, 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 pro-life, knowing the courts were going to shoot it down. Well, everything got really real when Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I think they're scared of both. You know, they're scared of not getting reelected. They're scared of not being a true representative in that sense. I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you. It's really frustrating, obviously, but that's where we are. It leads me to my next question. On MSNBC last year in 2022, you were interviewed on air about your views on South Carolina's strict abortion laws. And you were commenting, saying, quote, on possible exceptions for minors who were sexually assaulted, but were famously quoted for saying, quote, if you were raped as an adult, good luck. Do you believe any progress has or will be made on that front? Yeah, I mean... That's one of the most frustrating parts about this. So that was back when we were debating this bill with no exceptions. And like you said, the one exception that it looked like was going to go in there was a minor. And obviously I was being sarcastic when I said, you know, but if you're raped as an adult, good luck, right? So this current bill does allow a woman who's been raped to have an abortion up to 12 weeks. I want to make sure I got that right, but I'm pretty sure it's 12 weeks. And in addition to that, you also have to the doctor has to file a police report about your sexual assault with the sheriff in that county. So, right, I think the better example here is incest, right? So you're talking about a child who has been molested by probably a family member, right? A father, a stepfather, an uncle, a cousin. Not only does she have to get it together to figure out how to get to a doctor within the first 12 weeks, she also has to then know that they're going to call the police on her father, stepfather, uncle, cousin, brother, right? So that's like, what are we doing to our victims, right? Yeah. And so that was one of the things- And victims might not be ready to press charges yet because if it's a family member, what- Right. You're re-victimizing them over and over. 
Yeah. I mean, you're re-victimizing them by, you know, we learned this from Dr. Lisa Smith in, in one of our episodes that, you know, not only is it the pressure, you feel like you need to protect them and or what are the repercussions going to be, but you also have to keep telling your story over yeah. and over and over again. It. And now you got to go to the solicitor's office and relive it with them. And it's awful. So, you know, from that perspective, right, we just saw that story out of another, I'm sorry, I can't remember the state, Alabama, Mississippi, where this young girl had been molested or maybe raped. I'm not sure if it was an incest situation, but she's 13. She started seventh grade this week and she couldn't get an abortion. So she's also going to be a mom. Like, really? We're We're asking our seventh graders to be pregnant? I mean, it's just unbelievable. So it's all sad. I wish I had some answer for you, but the reality is we're going to see the practice of medicine chill. You know, we're already having a very difficult time. There are some national resident recruitment firms that sort of help residents find the right fit for the hospitals. And they said they are having an like almost crisis level difficult time bringing residents to states with restrictive abortion bans. Because keep in mind, these bans, the way they're enforced is they make doctors felons, right? Yeah. They said, we're sending doctors to prison, right? Well, because if they make a decision to save the woman's life, right, if they have to abort the child, they're going to get in trouble for carrying out an abortion, even though they know that the mother might die. Yes, yes, yes. And so we're putting our, if you're a maternal healthcare doctor, right, a, you know, like an OBGYN, but like specializing in maternal fetal medicine, why would you practice in South Carolina or any other state with a super restrictive bill where your livelihood and your actual freedom are in jeopardy for making a medical call? It's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's not even like you already have to deal with the malpractice. Like that's enough pressure in and of itself. And then add in the fact that you could go to prison. I mean, yeah, I think the answer is pretty easy. I don't want to be. And at one point you even mentioned that there's the doctors are spending so much time dealing with the legal aspects of it, like more time with that than actually caring for their patients. And I, I guess my thing is, and I, maybe for everybody that's listening, I think it's important. You're not sitting here saying that there should be laws to protect necessarily, like to protect abortion, that we should have the right to get, I mean, like for the most part, it's that the law shouldn't be involved in this at all. Exactly. Exactly. That there's no place for the law when it comes to your body. Because there's not a single medical professional in the state house, and it is not our position to make these decisions. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And I think that that's what a lot of doctors are like, okay, so now you're going to tell me how to practice medicine when you don't know anything about it. So that's awesome. But, you know, I think you brought up Roe v. Wade. And, you know, since this show is focused on trauma, do you think that these laws, our law that are being upheld and Roe v. Wade itself being overturned are going to have a more traumatic effect on women across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. And sadly, very, very sadly, the people that are going to be most impacted are those without the means to travel to another state, right? Abortion bans do not stop abortion. They simply either force it underground or, you know, force people to travel, right? So, what is going to happen is we are going to see the women with means, you know, flying out to another state to seek the care. And we're going to see women and particularly young people who have been the victims of these crimes or young people in a disadvantaged situation. We're going to see an increase in childbirths. And, you know, just the statistics, I mean, I think we can all recognize anecdotally how traumatic that would be. But there's actual science. Imagine that we've got data demonstrating that children born 
to teenage mothers are more likely to experience trauma. They are more likely to experience hunger. They are more likely to experience abuse and neglect. These are statistics. And this is what we're now going to be faced with here in South Carolina. Maternal mortality, South Carolina is the eighth worst maternal mortality in the country. And now we want to have, we have 14 counties without a single OBGYN. I guarantee you that number is going to go up. We're going to have fewer maternal health care providers. We're going to have fewer people accessing maternal health care. We're going to see mortality numbers increase. We're going to see outcomes get worse. I don't know what it's going to take, but that's what we're going to see. And it's really sad. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Well, Spencer, you mentioned in the past your colleague, Republican Neil Collins, as someone who is starting to understand the consequences of these restrictions. Could you sort of elaborate on your discussions with members on you know, the other side? And do you see any progress in the future in getting them to understand and vote accordingly? So understand and vote accordingly are two different questions. <laughs> I do think that there will be a point at which maybe not just South Carolina, but you know, all these laws are pretty new, right? We're seeing these six-week bills, I think, in Florida, Arkansas, like a lot of places we're starting to see these bills. And I think a year from now, two years from now, maybe not South Carolina, or maybe we look at all the statistics collectively, but we're going to have both horror stories and, you know, like I said, increased statistics. And I think that is what it's going to take, right? If you ask them that question, a Republican who maybe understands it, but is voting to support the bills, they would say, I am but a representative of the public. And the public in my district wants this bill, right? They believe in this. They believe this is murder and therefore believe that this is legitimately within the province of the legislature to regulate. And so I think the public is going to have to change its view before you will see, especially the public who votes in Republican primaries, is going to have to change the stories that come out of these states, like the 13-year-old in seventh grade, you know, these types of stories, I think over time will change the public consciousness and there may be an opportunity to revisit it as that mentality and understanding and exposure to the trauma that's going to come with this. I hope that will change the public, which will therefore change the votes. Right. But you, you said earlier in the program that you kind of, you're more of behind the scenes until you have to be loud. So do you think that there is a way with these side conversations, just having more of them? I don't know how to, yeah. else to do it because, and do they even want to talk about it? You know, they're walking to a different chamber, whatever. And, you know, can we talk about this? Or can we go to coffee? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, so a lot of it happens, you know, outside the halls of the state house. You know, I mean, these are friendships and relationships that you build over time and you build them by going to conferences and by, you know, doing events and things. But I will say that the side conversations are how we got a lot of pieces in this bill. So while this bill okay. is horrible, it actually does protect contraceptives. It gets rid of an old law that actually criminalized women for self-managing an abortion with medicine, you know, the misoprostol that you could, that's like a two-dose regimen that a doctor prescribed. So it actually got rid of the part that criminalized women. And that all came about through side conversations. Child support, which actually probably wouldn't have been, I was sort of surprised, but hey, whatever, that's great. Yeah, we'll never wait and get it done. Child support from the moment of conception. There was one other piece that I was like proud to get in the bill. Child support, contraceptives. Oh, 
the access to healthcare. So the you don't need a doctor anymore to prescribe birth control. Oh, so you yeah, can go that's straight to the pharmacy. Yeah. You yeah. Can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When are we gonna see that, do you think? And we're in waiting on the board of pharmacy to put the guidelines out to the pharmacists. So I know that they put the first set out in draft form a couple weeks, maybe a month or two ago, but we're kind of waiting on the board of pharmacy. Obviously it's a contentious thing for them and you know they want to make sure they're doing right by their customers. So you know I, I wouldn't want to rush that process, but hopefully in the next six months. Well, I think at least that in some ways, like you said, this is all, it's sad. And I think even in that MSNBC conversation, he says that the interviewer says, you know, how do you feel about these draconian laws? Like, I mean, clearly the rest of the country is not, you know, in sync with what we're doing. They're like, what's it like living in the past? But I guess it's <laughs> it is a little bit promising because I think one of the things that is so infuriating about this is like, okay, well, you're going to be anti-abortion, but it's like they're pro-birthers. Like they're not pro-supporting them afterwards and they're not pro-getting birth control out to every person that can get it. So what are you, you're just setting this up for just like a bunch of people that can't take care of these new people and that are all traumatized. And, you know, I agree with you. I think that it's going to take a lot of kind of hard statistics. I think it might take some of these people that, you know, I think a lot of people locally try to, or secretly now more so kind of look at as outsiders that are coming in to Mm -hmm. populate the the South and we're getting rid of, but you know, that that could be another realm of hope. But, you know, I did kind of want to get your opinion on, you've kind of criticized the origins of a lot of these bills that aren't just here, but they're influenced by national groups that are seeking profit. So how does that work? And could you, you know, kind of explain, I don't know how we can maybe control that? Because it's like if we have the whole constituent, we have the constituents Mm -hmm. being like, we're now okay with y'all not being up in this business. But then there's still these Mm -hmm. groups that are coming in and saying this. How does that factor in? Yeah. All right, y'all. It's sorry. I feel like I've been on my soapbox all day today, but this is just obviously really passionate about this stuff. We're providing the soapbox. I appreciate that. But yeah, sorry to get all crazy again, but here we go. So there are several national organizations that promote these bills. They draft these bills. They profit off of these bills. So National Rights Life is the group that I think they raised something like $8 million last year in fear-based fundraising, right? Democrats are murdering babies. They want to murder the babies. Oh, I right? saw that. That's them. Okay. Yeah. I saw that. So that's so that's National Right to Life. They are more political in nature. They're fundraising and then they're supporting candidates and sort of running ads in that world. All right. So that's fine. But I mean, it's not fine, but like that's one one side of a coin. And that will be, you know, Laura, I'll get to your question in a second. But the in my opinion, more pernicious side of this is groups like Alliance Defending Freedom. They, I told you National Rights Life made $8 million. Alliance Defending Freedom made $54 million last year because what they do is they shop bills to state legislatures that create a cause of action in the courts. And then they come in as lawyers, sue the states, sue the hospitals, sue whoever, and then they profit from that litigation. So their $54 million that they raised, some of it was fear-based fundraising, but most of it was actually from litigation. The standard fee for a sort of a plaintiff's suit like that is for them to take a third. So you talk about recovery. The worst part of the abortion bill, the worst part is the civil cause of action. 
Laura, you know this, when you're a lawyer, you have to go into court and you have to prove to a jury actual damages and sometimes punitive damages. This is the first bill and the only bill in the state of South Carolina that creates a a third category of damages called statutory damages. It is $10,000 per defendant guaranteed. The jury can't change that amount. They can't diminish it. So what does that mean? Alliance Defending Freedom and similar litigation groups will seek out plaintiffs who have had an abortion or whatever, or maybe the father, you know, the standing in this is the family members too. So they will seek out these families. It's a payday for the families. It's a payday for National Alliance Defending Freedom. And they will sue our South Carolina hospitals, our South Carolina doctors, the state of South Carolina, if it's in USC, and they will get $10,000 for each defendant automatic if they prevent, so I wonder if they right? could even do like a class action at some point. I mean, oh, probably. Yeah. Ugh. So, I mean, that is the worst part of this is the profit motivation behind all of it. And we have to talk about that. We have to keep talking about that. That's to me, the most offensive part of this whole bill and all, you know, this whole bullshit, excuse me, about, oh, we drafted this bill ourselves and put on all these protections for women. No, you were spoon fed the $10,000. Remember it first started in Texas and we all called it the bounty, right? Texas had broader standing for who could bring that suit. It, It was anyone. And so we, or it still is, I think. So we called it, it was more of like a bounty, right? Then it got narrowed a little bit. Tennessee narrowed it a little bit, but it's the exact same dollar amount. It's 10,000 in each bill because these national groups are spoon feeding these bills. Interesting pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So it's incredibly depressing. But to your question, we fight it with fire. We continue to fund national organizations, right? Like Planned Parenthood does a hell of a job. You know, maybe Planned Parenthood may not be because they actually are providing the abortion. So maybe that's you know, it's going to sound hypocritical, right? If they're the ones, but we fund national organizations that are fighting fire with fire on these things that are calling out hypocrisy, that are calling out how extreme these bans are. And we're, we're making some progress, right? You're seeing all these other states where there have been referendums. South Carolina is not allowed. We don't have a procedure for a citizen-led referendum. The legislature has to approve it. So you won't see that in South Carolina, but these other states that have these referendums on the ballot for constitutional amendments, the national organizations on the other side, right, the pro-choice organizations are coming in and doing the work. So we're seeing success and we're going to see a lot more ballot initiatives in the next election. But you continue with your dollars and your volunteer manpower to support the national organizations doing the work on the other side because we're just going to have to fight fire with fire. Yeah. So essentially for everybody listening that feels a little bit helpless is that that's kind of where we are at. That's the only way you can kind of do any good. Because, you know, at this point, Mm -hmm. that's, I think, the scariest part is that how much money has gone into this and that we just sometimes, was it, you know, when they go low, we go high. Like, and and sometimes you got to go low too, you know, like you got to go low into your pocket. We're not, yeah, low into your pocket, but we're not, (laughs) Nothing we're putting out is dirty or untruthful, no, right? No, we're no. simply pointing like we are going high. We're just going high with some money behind it, right? Like yeah. we're going high because we're pointing out, you know, we're telling the stories of women who are been victimized by this. We're telling the stories of doctors. We're telling the stories, right? We are going high. We just have to spend money to make sure that the going high message gets out there. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So, that it's like yeah, there's an actual chance that somebody is gonna hear those stories. Exactly. So the best thing people can do when they feel helpless about this stuff is 
honestly, right now we've reached the end of the line in terms of courts and legal appeals for the most part. Support candidates in state house races. You know, I know that's a plug for myself, but it's it's also for a lot of colleagues of mine around the South. Support candidates who support these policies, support organizations. In South Carolina, we have two abortion funds that help women who don't have the money to seek out health care in another state, the Palmetto State Abortion Fund and the Carolina Abortion Fund, and then support national organizations that are doing the work to put out these political messages of how extreme these abortion bans are. It's going to matter a lot in the Republican national primary. You heard Nikki Haley talking about how, you know, there aren't the votes in the Senate to put in a federal abortion ban. That's because we have national organizations doing the work right now to make sure that senators in swing states won't support something like that. So keep supporting these national organizations that are doing that work right now. Yeah. Otherwise, we're going to be in the handmaid's tale pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Spencer, what is your ultimate goal in the political arena? Would you ever move to Washington? (laughs) I don't think so. Listen, I'm not going to say never, but like, Man, I think I said this once before, but like, I really hate fundraising. It's the worst part of this. Like when I signed up to run, I honestly, like had like a, one of those little, you know, notes on your phone, like whatever you call those things, the notes app on your iPhone. And I was like writing out my policy positions on guns and like abortion. And then I went to my first meeting about, you know, how to run a campaign. And they were like, so we need you to raise $150,000. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, like <laughs> Are you kidding me? And so like multiply that by 10 in federal Congress. And I just can't see myself. Like, I hate it so much. I hate the fundraising. I love governing. I love legislating. I love being like the nerd who knows all the stupid statistics about abortions and OBGYNs. Like, but the fundraising piece is probably enough to keep me from running for any higher office. Well, Laura, do you want to go ahead and do our tradition? Yeah. So, you know, obviously we would keep you here all day, but we know you're very busy and you need to go, you know, fight all those other good fights. But we do have a tradition, a question of the day. And so today our question for you is if you could have a conversation with any historical figure, who would it be and why? Ooh, All right. So I'm reading a book right now, which everybody needs to go read. And it's about the relationship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod Bethune. And so one cool thing about me is that a big part of my family is from Maysville, South Carolina, outside of Sumter, which is where Mary McLeod Bethune was born. And so she went on to forge this like amazing, impactful friendship. She was black. Obviously, Eleanor Roosevelt was white and from like a very privileged family. And So it would be one of the two of them. And it would be because, you know, that's the exact example of like women who are up against odds, who like figure out how to make a difference by working within the system and without, you know, outside the system and very much how I see myself. So it'd be one of the two of them or maybe both of them if I could. Yeah, that's a great answer. I mean, and it's the first ladies. the First ladies, yes. And I think that that it's kind of, I love this idea of, Working from within, basically, mm-hmm. just I mean, because it's how we've had to operate as women this whole time, anyways. I mean, we're, we're pretty good at it at this point. Infiltration. Not, I mean, yeah, facts. <laughs> Not you, Todd. Like other Not less, me. yeah, yeah, less yeah. Of course, course, course. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. No, he's, yes. he's an ally, so yeah. that, that helps for sure. Well, Spencer, we can't thank you enough for coming on Next Page today. We're really, really, really happy to have you. Oh, yes. thank y'all so much for having me. I really appreciate. And thank it. you for the work you're doing. 
Well, listen, it's honestly been really cathartic and refreshing for me to sit down and have this conversation because I really hadn't processed a lot of my emotions after the Supreme Court decision came out. So thank you all for giving me the opportunity to sort of let it all out. (laughs) Anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. I think it was an important conversation for us to have and for everybody else to hear as well, who's probably still processing this information so we'll have all the links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes and you know we just hope you have a wonderful rest of your day well thank you so much all right bye 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 So what'd you think? Oh, I'm not used to you asking first. I thought it was fantastic. I just love her. I mean, it's so crazy that both of us have known her for so long. And then it's kind of, I was thinking about this this morning, how many people I grew up with here that are now like running for office. We obviously went to some great schools and met some awesome people. So of course they were going to accomplish greatness, but you know, it's amazing that you know, she went on to do this and to be such a force. She's very much, she's so humble about, you know, everything she does. I mean, you know that she's smart, but like, because she's so humble, you never know she went to Princeton and Vanderbilt for law school. Like you'd never know those things. She's, she's such an approach. That's probably why she's doing well in politics because she's such an approachable human. Yeah, for sure. But also like scary if she needs to be, you know, I I really want everybody to go. We're going to have to have a direct link to that TikTok of her because it's just so powerful and not powerful in a like, I'm going to scream back at you or I'm going to, it's all with just practical, logical arguments, which I guess, you know, that's a lot of reason why a lot of lawyers go into, you know, politics because they can just argue that, you know, this is, that's nonsensical rubbish, but she gives me hope for our state because it, like you said, the handmaid's tale, like you're not here every day, Todd. I know you're from here and you can't take the South out of you, but you know, it is, it's a different world. Every time I go to another state and, you know, I spend so much time, you know, up in DC area, but it's like, right. Even, you know, it's just like, wow, like you feel so free up here. And I love South Carolina. I love Charleston, but it's just sometimes when I was younger, all I could think about was I just couldn't wait to get out because it felt like these were not in some ways like my people. And as time has gone on, I found my people that are here but it's hard. It's hard here, guys. You're doing your own part. I mean, you host a lot of political fundraisers. You have definitely stepped up in the way that you know how you call your friends, you talk to your family members, you try to get the word out when there's a big election coming out. You always do your part when it comes to that to try and make change in South Carolina. Seriously, as a friend, friend to friend, you really do do. You're doing the good fight. Well, I think that's why this podcast is also important is like that. I don't think a lot of people and some people might think that it's a little bit off brand or whatever for us to have on political figures or something like that. I'm sorry, off brand. I can't think of anything more uh, traumatic than an (laughs) abortion or women's rights being taken away. Yeah. Or even gerrymandering, like the whole concept that we, you know, learned initially Mm -hmm. about with Joe Cunningham, but that it really is affecting people in such an intense way. And, and a lot of people love to downplay that, oh, well, it doesn't matter who's president, doesn't affect my day-to-day life. Yes, it does. If it doesn't affect you, it's definitely affecting your sister or somebody that is, especially women. I mean, if you're in one of 
these states, Tennessee, Texas, South Carolina, whatever, that is dealing with these things, it is traumatic to see time literally get just rewound. It's bizarre. And I think I said off air that living in L.A., people are like their eyes go really wide when I tell them, like, this is what's going on in the South right now. This is still going on. And they're like, what are they in the 19, the early 1900s? What is happening? It's 2023, sir. Exactly. I mean, even that's, you know, we asked, like, why do we think these videos are, are, you know, so popular? And it's because it's like a spectacle to everybody else. They're like, what is happening down there? That is nuts. Thank God we don't live there. And people think, oh, that must have been like 10 years ago. And yeah. It's like, no, bitch, it's happening right now. No, literally now. several days ago. But unfortunately, I think a lot of these groups, the national organizations that have funded all these things, are, love to put out lots of heinous, Things, scare tactics that get people to, you know, basically they're they're voting how they think they're supposed to. They're voting against murdering babies. And, you know, if that's what I thought was happening, then. (laughs) But of course, and Spencer is like, I'm not suggesting infanticide ever. I have children. You know, it's like, that's what I meant when I said, how does she get through day to day with these, you know, old Southern gentlemen that say, oh, you just want to let the baby die on the table. Sir, shut up. Sit down, Mr. McCravey. Have you ever seen a 24 week old with a little hat on? I I saw that comment that she was (laughs) referencing and I laughed hysterically. And I think I was even at my gynecologist. (laughs) <laughs> when I was watching this video, it was very fitting. And, but no, I think she's just, there is, it is a divisive issue. I understand that. But at the end of the day, if you really break down the facts, it's really not, you know, if, if people really got the real information of how this is not a, we're pro murdering babies. We're just pro the government staying out of it. Like that the government not have a say that doctors and patients make those decisions themselves. Right. And it's such a, it's such a private, careful decision to be made. Now, now, are there exceptions to the rule? Are there women out there that use abortion as a form of birth control? Sure. I'm sure that they exist yeah. in the world, but the majority of women do not feel that way when they have to have an abortion or because it's it's a health issue or the baby's going to die or they're going to die. Like yeah. she said it on the program, like typically it's people that want to have a child. Yeah. And they can't for whatever reason, because the the baby's going to be born, you know, stillborn. Yeah. I really applaud Spencer for, you know, getting involved in politics. I mean, I know her dad was at the forefront of it. I I mean, we remember when that Shannon Faulkner stuff was going on at the Citadel. I mean, the Save the Males, I can't. It was a blast from the past when I like went to to look that up. And it was like, just still weird that that even happened. When people would taunt Spencer at school about it, like they would, you know, why is your dad representing that stupid bitch? Like, I mean, this is like when we were, but this is the, what, the 90s? Yeah, the 90s, you oh, know, God. it was a, an interesting time, you know, the but you know what I loved drugs. about the 90s? What? We didn't have the internet. It wasn't as prevalent. Yes, yes. I mean, it was a, it was a feat to get on the internet. Yeah. And even then, I think AOL tried to stay pretty like neutral. Uh, you, it, yeah. AOL told you what was up and that was what you were going to do. There was no other exactly. agenda. Well, let me ask you the question of the day, Laura. Let me ask you. If you could have a conversation with any historical figure, who would it be and why? This is a tough one. I would say... It would definitely be, I really liked Spencer's answer, by the way, but I Mm -hmm. think it would be somebody like Harriet Tubman, who literally, yeah, was 
putting like in the midst of something so life endangering that you put your own stuff aside and your own fear aside and and just go forth with it anyways. And how did you get that, I don't know, bravery to do such a big thing? Because in this day and age, I think we're so consumed by the little everyday crap that's like, you know, did I check all my emails today? But, (laughs) you know, meanwhile, there's so many periods of time that people were, I mean, everything was, everything was life and death. So we should at least be able to muster up the courage to have those similar kind of fights that are, you know, even this issue, it's a life or death issue. I mean, just like she said, people aren't going to stop getting abortions. They're just either going to go elsewhere or they're going to hurt themselves or possibly kill themselves doing it. So, you know, I think that to speak to somebody that had such an amazing cause and, and went forward without, you know, in the face of it, I think would be really cool. How about you? Well, I think I have a sort of a controversial answer. Ooh, okay. I hope I don't get any hate for this on the show. I want to know, I would love to sit and talk with, because I'm one of those people who stays up at night and watch those documentaries on Netflix about, Mm -hmm. you know, serial killers and all that because they fascinate me. So I'm fascinated by people who have the mental capacity to you know, torture people or that that doesn't affect them in any way. It just yeah. it's fascinates me. So like, I would love to interview or, or have a, you know, have a conversation with Adolf Hitler. Oh, that would be very interesting. Yeah. Because I want to know what makes you think that Jewish people should not live. What makes you think that Gay people should not live because remember, in, back in that time, he made them wear mm-hmm. uh, pink triangles. And also, I just want to know because people actually said he was not like he was charming. Yeah, which is why Trump was such a huge fan of you know Trump idolized Adolf Hitler. Yeah, I mean, like if you want to have the equivalent of a conversation with him, the closest you could get is read Mein Kampf his entire book about, about it. And I mean, a lot of it is just, it's kind of just circular nonsense, but it is fascinating in its own way, because it's like, in order to, you know, it's like, what do they say? You know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Exactly. It's kind of a way to understand how that those people tick so that you can try to disarm them. Yes. I think it'd be really interesting and profound to have a conversation with someone who created such a massive genocide and movement. And I love when people say that the Holocaust never happened or that it wasn't oh, real. Oh God. I mean, I with the internet, people. what is, I know how, what is going <laughs> <the> on? Pictures. <laughs> yeah. Literally I'm sorry. Pictures. It's just bananas, yeah. but yeah. And, and it's scary to me that in certain ways that we get these glimpses of things like that, possibly taking hold and happening again. Like that was supposed to, oh, have we learned nothing? And I guess the lesson history is always repeats itself. we're doomed to repeat history <laughs> no matter what. You know what the next page message is today? Take the vacation. Yes. Do the, do the thing that you're not, that you think you're not going to have time to do because you, you might not. <laughs> yeah, you might, <laughs> might not be around. But, you know, I think that it's it, in a way, the two people that we both want to talk to, can inform 
the movement to the next page of, you know, take the vacation, get restored, but then come back and fight the good fight because, you know, it's people like us that will make a difference. Exactly. That would have been an interesting conversation between Harriet Tubman and Adolf Hitler. I mean, to have them sit down together. The language barrier might have been a problem. Might have been a moment, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yes, it would be fascinating. Well, (laughs) as always, it's just so wonderful to see you. And I think today was just, it was needed. So thank you. Have a wonderful evening, afternoon, wherever you Yeah, what a time. Wonderful morning. (laughs) (laughs) You too. Bye. 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 